This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. Before we get started, I just have a content warning for this episode. We do discuss the topic of suicide. If you or someone you know struggles with thoughts of suicide, please contact your local crisis line or suicide hotline. If you want to learn more about the topic, you can check out steverosephd.com under the suicide and mental health category under articles. Enjoy the episode and take care. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Today we will be talking about Memento Mori. Wow, what a strange concept. So strange. I think it's actually probably one of the more mainstream ones that we've talked about. So hopefully it's not treading too well-worn of ground. But I figured we'd have some sort of talk about it because you really wanted to talk about Ikigai and I don't. So, <laughs> well, I at least don't want to explain it. So what is the concept again? I, I, it's, I never heard it before. Are you serious? Memento Mori? Memento Mori? Okay. It's then I guess this is perfect because I thought you would be. I don't think the average person, I don't think the average person knows about this. Mm, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe. Do you know about it? Are you familiar? Never. I've never heard the term before. Are you serious? Oh, I thought you would have been been like, oh, I've been there, done that. So <laughs> this is the curse of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, okay. So memento mori is Latin for remember that you must die or that you will die or just simply remember your death. And <laughs> wait, you do know about this because you remember that bird? I know. Yeah. Yes. I know about the idea. I've never heard the concept. Okay. We're going to touch yeah. on that bird at some point, but yeah. Okay. So originating from an ancient Roman tradition, uh, supposedly where a slave would stand behind a general who was returning victorious. And while they were parading through town, the slave would whisper in their ear, memento mori. So like, remember, you're going to die. This is not all of your life. This is not permanent. This is just a fleeting thing. And I guess focus on what you're going to be doing next. Maybe I don't know exactly what their intention was other than just like, maybe don't rest on your laurels. Anyway, what have you been thinking about lately? Uh, crisis calls, de-escalation, uh, dialectical behavioral therapy. Remember, this is with absolutely no context. So can you give a little more light on that? Oh, <laughs> well, I, uh, I do work as a person doing receiving crisis calls, my side gig, as well as private practice clients. And... It's been a it's been a fun time the last few days really getting acquainted with the types of callers that I've been receiving. You didn't mention that this was specifically for COVID, I think, and with an, a very respected institution if you want to name them. I don't know if you do. Very very respected. We'll just we'll just leave we'll just leave it there. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but it is it is a it is a specific uh, COVID-19 emergency call situation where you get a mixed bag, you get uh, everything from strong suicidal intention all the way to like I just want a few quick tips and everything in between. So it's, it's been very fun and a learning experience. Yeah. I'm sure that's exactly what people think of when they think of fun. <laughs> well, my version, yeah, you know, my version of fun is, uh, is a good challenge in, a, in an area that I enjoy. And it's, it's been that it's been just that I'll say. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that would be kind of fun. And what about yourself? Me? I had well three things first are two quotes both are just memes slash 
unaccredited quotes. The first one is slow success builds character, fast success builds ego. I think I sent that to you yesterday. I thought that was interesting. That's such a good quote. And I think it's relatable to people in their their 20s, early 20s, when you're not necessarily getting fast success, but you're learning so much really fast, like in, in university or college, when you're acquiring all of these these understandings and insights into the world so rapidly like a fire hose. And then you develop this ego around, I know everything. And therefore, this belief is the best. <laughs> and then you get the ego around it, get defensive, Facebook flame wars, you know, that whole, yep. that whole loop. We've, we've both seen that before. So mm-hmm. what I'm thinking actually is it ties into two things. One came from you to speaking now. And the other one was something I've been thinking about that I didn't connect to this until I just said it strangely. So the first one that you were saying is it ties back to the fixed mindset thing we were talking about last time, where I was thinking about this, how intelligence, if you're a really smart kid, then everything comes easy to you as a child, which builds you some ego around the fixed mindset. I am a smart kid. But then eventually stuff gets more difficult and you don't actually know how to learn. You don't know how to push through difficulties like that. And so they end up actually kind of petering out. That was one thought. The other thought is how I'm kind of noticing this trend of our generations, especially so early 30s, where the people who got what was promised to us. So speaking of this, it's, it's our boomer parents basically continually promised me, at least uh, I think this is a common refrain that. I had to do a lot of drudgery, a lot of really crappy summer jobs throughout school. And the promise was that this was why I went to school. This is why I had to save up this money to go to get an education. Because once I left, then I would no longer have to do that work. Surprise for me that when I graduated, I continued to have to do the exact same work. But I think the people that did get that promise that they went to school and I guess they picked something that was very narrow and specific that does well in this system those people tend to also have some sort of ego around it. And they tend to lean more libertarian on average from my experience, because they tend to believe that everything that they got was completely on their own merit and that it was not the system or the situation or chance. It was simply that they were smart enough and clever enough and they picked the right thing that other people could have picked and could have done, but didn't. Right. We, we chose the, I guess, social, I guess I chose social sciences and you chose psychology and they're... Are they not both social sciences? I guess psychology as a social science or some people say behavioral science. Either way, you want to say it, it's not um, an engineering, accounting, nursing... STEM. That's a, a very smooth smooth grease slide transition right into a specific role. Like we got to, we have to really be creative in how we apply what we've learned because there's no specific, well, more for psychology. You could see that the psychologist makes sense or like counselor and, you know, counselors and all that. But for the social science, it's even broader, I would say, in that you, you really have to get creative after schooling. Yeah. And that's actually something that would be a common retort to us that we simply chose wrong. But I guess the counterpoint to these things... <laughs> we chose wrong. I know, right? Like but The counterpoint to this is like, it's not like I couldn't do accounting or I couldn't figure out these other things. It's merely that I don't enjoy them. I would feel like I, like I would be succeeding as something that I would consider currently to be a failure. I would be doing something that I hate. And that's actually kind of why we would get to this. Maybe I'm being a little bit nihilistic or uh, fatalistic in that sense. But I mean, I could succeed at a path that somebody else chose, but then by my own definition, that would be failure because I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm just doing what other people think I should be doing. Right. And 
I think also that these other areas all have value, maybe more limited than others in terms of application or broader scopes. But I don't think that it's right to just value certain things as well. I mean, this, this whole promise that I'm talking about, this is all completely off topic, but I think we can tie this in. We probably could. Yeah. This, this whole promise that was given to us was from a people, from people of a generation where if you went to school and got a bachelor's in like say English, something that today is considered, Oh, well you wasted your time. Those people could still go and like get instantly get like a management job in a corporation. The problem being that at that time, because if you had a degree, you not only had a job, you had a good job. Yeah. Everyone in that, in, in that generation saw this. And so they all insisted, my kid's going to go to school. Thus, in one generation almost, we have a huge, what's called education inflation, which makes every one of these degrees far less valuable. It's like in Germany, apparently, like everybody's a doctor and mm. it doesn't really mean as much because they're all doctors. Right, right. Education inflation like that. And I, I really do want to tie this in to the concept of memento mori or remembering your death, because it really does have a connection for me personally. How so? (laughs) Well, funny you ask. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yes. If you didn't just tee that up. Okay. (laughs) Tell me, Whoa, tell me more about that. Well, since you asked in, as you know, in my history, I, I wanted to go into policing and I thought sociology was a good way to spend four years in the meantime. So I I had a very specific role that is targeted toward the degree would have worked for that. In the final year... Sorry, which profession did you say you were going to lead up to? Just making sure. RCMP particularly, yes. And so I had that very specific promise in in the sense that you get this degree, you will get a good job. And it all made sense. And I very well could have went that route with that degree. But there was something in me that it's like your internal voice saying, well, even if you do have signs of outward success that you made it, you have a good stable job and a pension and benefits and all that. Would you really be fully satisfied yourself? And are you particularly well, ideally suited to that? Hmm. Or is it like a square peg in a round hole? You know, you just keep pushing in and it's not quite fitting. And then you blame yourself for not being good enough, but really you're just not in the right role. So I figured that out in the final year that I really do need to keep going in this sociological path wherever it leads. Just need to take a leap of faith, follow it wherever it leads. And that remember your death really kicked in that full final year of university that I had that passion for sociology. It was like, I have to make the most of my time. And that's, that's what was really driving a lot of that passion. Yeah. And I can definitely relate with that. If you remember from, I think the first episode, maybe second, where we spoke about nihilism mm-hmm. and how I wanted to make a difference yeah. and have an impactful life. But then I realized that if you zoom out too far, then it doesn't matter at all. And so that, I guess what I was struggling with that in my own terms, because like, I don't know, what am I doing now? I'm doing a podcast. I'm writing children's stories. I'm writing about Dungeons and Dragons and coffee online. So <laughs> I mean, I'm helping some people, I guess, in some ways, but I guess there are more we could do. But then, I mean... Do we have to change society or change the world for it to be important? Can we not settle for, I don't know, personal satisfaction, I guess? Well, if that's your thing, like, so my thing is just so happens to fit well with changing society and and or the world one person at a time, ideally in an ideal sense, but it's not because of that, that I'm doing it. It's, it's more of you find something that draws on an intellectual passion that happens to fit with your unique strengths. And outwardly, it could be like, he's such a good person helping people. But, you know, that's not the, that's, there's many different ways you can help people. Like policing is one way. Hmm. 
but uh, I don't know where I'm going with this, but that's, that's that. Well, we can, we can use that. I mean, eventually we're going to talk about work in Ikigai, which we've already mentioned. Uh, for those paying attention, yeah. I did mention that there was <laughs> two quotes and I've only said one and a third thing. So I'm just going to tack onto those. And then afterwards, I want to talk about stoicism for a bit. I don't think anyone remembers the fact that you didn't say your two quotes. I guarantee somebody's going to be like, wait, he said this, and but he only gave a third of that. So the other quote was just actually, give me my quotes. The other one was a joke quote, which was, why do men start podcasts instead of going to therapy? <laughs> so I was, oh, I, love that. I was laughing at that because I'm like, oh yeah, hey, look at us. I guess you technically <laughs> are is, a therapist. So <laughs> this is my, but this is my, this therapy. is my therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you're, you're the counselor. I'm not one. So what do you want? <laughs> yeah, this is my therapy. Okay. Well, good. Your, um, concept therapy. <laughs> yes. The other one is that I've been reading the book Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. And I gotta say, I, I don't, I really don't get why it's a classic. I I'm assuming you have not read this, correct? No, I've heard the name, but no, I haven't. The only reason I'm continuing to read it, because it's it's kind of loosely about this girl. She's involved, but like the more central focus of the story, the main drive of the plot is the guy that she falls for, is the guy that keeps sleeping with everybody else. He's basically a womanizer that's wrecking other marriages and such, including hers. So <laughs> the only reason I'm finishing it, because it's this kind of flimsy, kind of boring plot to do with mostly romance. I don't think I've heard too many guys have read it, except for my one friend. He said, only read it if you want to hear about how living in the country is amazing and how living in the city is terrible. <laughs> I don't know. I'm like three quarters of the way through and he I can see what he's talking about. When he said that, I was wondering if he was maybe the Russian um, Ayn Rand, where the first half is just kind of a plot that's okay. And then the second half is just continually hammering the same points again and again and almost dropping the facade of a story and just going straight to philosophy. Uh, The main thing that I take away from his writing, though, is that his insight into psychology is actually very interesting. Just the odd quip will come up. And one thing that he mentioned was one character being in want of wants. Mm. They wanted to want something. And I think that that actually seems somewhat relevant to Memento Mori because if some people, they, they wish they had a drive to do something, but they just can't find it. That's exactly it. The wanting for a want. I think the simple word for it is purpose, really. No, there's another word that I can't. I was, I keep, someone to say anomie, but I think it's, it's another kind of, mm obscure philosophy term. Maybe it'll come up in the conversation, but yeah. Purpose, I guess. Apathy? No, it's something more obscure than that. <laughs> okay. So stoicism, the why, why I wanted to talk about stoicism. So stoicism on Wikipedia, honestly, I don't feel like the definition does very well. And the Wikipedia doesn't really seem to put a fine point on it. Okay. Here, here's the definition of it. Quote, stoicism teaches the development of self-control and fortitude as a means of overcoming destructive emotions. The philosophy holds that becoming a clear and unbiased thinker allows one to understand the universal reason, AKA the logos End quote. That's basically the most succinct part of it. And even where it starts talking about tenets, it doesn't really go into it. So I wanted to distinguish that stoicism is not merely accepting everything without action, having absolutely no attachment to your family or your children, having no loyalty, not caring if people die, being completely indifferent and being completely emotionless. It is not these things. And those things are neither attainable nor desirable. Mm. And how does this relate to the concept at hand? So for me, my take is that it is to accept what the current situation is and acknowledge that it will all fade and crumble one day outside of our choosing. So just at any point, this can all fall apart. Anything good can go away. Anything bad can also go away, but things are constantly shifting and that all you can do is to do what you can 
the best you can in the moment, following whatever virtues that you think are the most appropriate. That actually is kind of the core tenet of Stoicism, that the main drive of life is to pursue a life of virtue, particularly Stoic virtues. They didn't quite list them, and I didn't, I kind of ran out of time to find the specific ones, but basically live, live up to those ideals. In terms of emotion, David Hume, another, he's not actually a Stoic philosopher, but he was most correct in this. And I know you already know this quote, but quote, yeah. reason is and only ought to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to be any other office than to serve and obey them, end quote. However, I actually contradict that somewhat a little bit, I guess, because I think to me, at least in the Stoic perspective, it's that we should understand, acknowledge and take note and take advice from our emotions, but not nice. rule them, not I, I was forced to do this because I had these emotions. They're not our rulers, but they are more, I think, a council of informants that make joint decisions for logic, I guess, a lot of the time. However, I also maintain that they fail us in a number of contexts yeah. of modern day because they didn't evolve around this technology. Mm. So, for example, if it comes to trusting people, then I think our emotions will lead us well a lot of the time because that's the thing that our emotions evolved around. They came at times when we were dealing with people and trust and war and all these things. But in modern contexts, say cars standing by the side of the road should be terrifying. It should be as terrifying as boulders just randomly falling off cliffs beside you. But for some reason, we're not scared of it. And I think it's because of that. Like we we don't really fathom on an emotional level how much danger we're actually standing in at any given time. Mm -hmm. But the reason I'm bringing up Stoicism is because they spoke the most among philosophy schools. They spoke a lot about death and particularly in practical concrete terms. They spoke about keeping it in mind because we need to use the foreknowledge of our death yeah. to decide how we should best act with the time we have left as opposed to just simply floating along. Yeah. Uh, what was it? Walking along in a sleeping daze. Oh, <laughs> uh, like base animals. So a quote from Seneca, quote, you are scared of dying and tell me, is the kind of life you lead really any different from being dead? End quote. Mm. So yeah, he was talking about like a living death, aka a meaningless life, putting off what we actually want, not appreciating what currently is, rushing towards the future. As Eckhart Tolle would say, get to the future, to get to the future and not live in the now. And also it seems like this interpretation of Memento Mori is the opposite of what I was earlier kind of stumbling over with the slave mentioning it in the general's ear. It's not to focus and get as much done as possible, but more to decide what is worth doing in the small amount of time that we have left. Right there. That's the key. And, and that's what I was talking about when I mentioned in my final year of university of coming to this realization of, oh, wow, I better make the most of the time I have left because what's the point in going through life in a role or a position that you, you're not really fully committed to and you may have outward success at the cost of betraying your internal strengths and values and, and what you really want to do. So I think that there's that connection you pointed out right there. It's the appreciation for our limited time, which is a, mo a form of motivation to do something about it rather than just walking around in a, uh, in a haze. Right. And it, it reminds me quite a bit of my research with veterans in transition to civilian life, where they came from a, an environment where they were constantly reminded of their potential death and there was you know, bullets and bombs and everything. So they were living that every day where they didn't know if they would make it to the next moment. And what that did for them was, was, create such urgency and, and purpose and connection and focus on the present moment 
that when they came out of that into civilian life where everything is easy and lax and loose, um, I, I have a quote from someone I don't have in front of me, but they said, it seems like everyone is sleepwalking through life here. Nobody has a purpose. Oh yeah. I, I feel that at my core a lot of the time. And I guess yeah. that's why I think we should probably talk about um, DBT at some point, <clears throat> the therapy you've been studying, mm-hmm. because I, for a while, you and I both, I think at one point felt kind of anxious about this. I think I was 25 when I had the same kind of realization that you had where I was like, oh shit, I only have five years until I'm 30. <laughs> I remember my sister actually saying at 25, oh, well, I still got five years. <laughs> I was like, no, <laughs> no, I don't think that way. Because... Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh shit, like I'm definitely not where I want to be. And now I guess seven, eight years later, I'm starting to get there. Uh, I guess (laughs) I've definitely built a lot of character along the way, but there actually were ancient practices to keep this in mind. And I think the, the reference to warriors, I guess, modern day warriors does fit because back in ancient times when this was actually a common thing, death was constant all around you. There actually is a really dark quote in here about Mm. by Epictetus. When you kiss your child at night, whisper to yourself, he may be dead in the morning end quote. (laughs) Oh, but it's so dark. It is super dark, but it's so like, dark. but the point is don't focus on the fact, this morbid fact that is also a true fact that we should, but also don't yeah. be in complete denial of it. Like yeah. live in the moment and appreciate your child. And that even if, okay, well you can think of death in different ways, right? Like physical death, like their body is decaying and they are no longer alive, but there's also the death when it comes to children of different forms of them. The child form will be dead when they become a, like a teen and the teen form will be dead when they become an adult. They no longer exist on this plane, right? So mm-hmm. in that way, you got to kind of appreciate the different stages and try to pay attention because like parents always talk about how it goes by so fast, blah, blah, blah. That I can relate to. Yeah. Can you already? <laughs> well, I was going to say in the moment, maybe you can't. And what you're saying, it's, it's the appreciating of what is right now because it's temporary and, and not just like a physical like death, but the death of different stages of life, they will only be an infant for a limited time. And that infant will, will effectively be gone and there'll be a, a toddler and that toddler will be gone. And and so it, it, in the same spirit of appreciating the time we have left on this earth, it really focuses you on appreciating that life stage that they're at at that moment. Or life in general, the now. Yeah, and, and in general, and, and but you can apply it to very specific yeah. instances like like uh, child rearing. When things are frustrating, you can say, well, they're only going to be this stage one time and I might as well appreciate what we have left of it. Right. Perhaps this is a crass comparison, but it makes me think about people like, I don't know, Bill Gates, when they used to be working with their friends in a small project in the garage. And at that time they weren't rich, they weren't famous. But I I wonder if they sometimes Mm. reminisce about that and kind of miss the good old days when they were just focusing on the work and not having to deal with all these other headaches that come along with success. The infancy of one's career, I think you can, you can apply it to as well. Yes. Appreciating the, like we should be appreciating the fact that this podcast is, is new and, and not, be stressed and anxious about how's it going to turn out? Are people going to like it? And oh. we can, <laughs> we, we can, we can just say, well, nobody, there's no pressure. If it goes bad, we don't have thousands of people that are going to message us saying, I didn't like that. Well, maybe in the future, but right now we have that freedom. Yeah. 
I mean, so far we've had some positive reception, though we're recording this before anything has been released. So it's just our friends listening to it. Yeah, exactly. So we can appreciate this this time. Yeah, the uh, the ghost town period of it. Yeah. But the reason I was bringing up death earlier was that one, infant mortality was super common back then. But also at that time, they actually, despite death being a prevalent thing, even then, for some reason, people actually had practices. So like the ancient Egyptians, apparently during times of festivities, they would bring out a skeleton with people cheering, saying, drink and be merry for when you're dead, you'll look like this to remind themselves that like now is the time to enjoy. So don't fade away, I guess. Democritus, the philosopher, trained himself by going into solitude and frequenting tombs. Plato, in his book, Phaedo, where he writes of Socrates' death, he introduced the idea that the proper practice of philosophy is about nothing else but dying and being dead. And is this why the philosophers put the skull on their desk? Yes. Yeah. And why Shakespeare had that, I guess, in the whole Hamlet thing, people may forget, but yeah. he's contemplating death and suicide when he's holding that skull, I believe. Right. And that makes, uh, that puts it into some context here because everyone is familiar with that image of the skull and holding the skull in the palm or having it on the desk as a decor, but we don't really question what that's about. Right. You know, it just looks like a dark piece of uh, furnishing, but there's some meaning behind that. Yes, it is a reminder of this very intention that we are we will die. That will be us one day. And that's actually why. And this is how I remembered that you don't do know this concept is that I, mm-hmm. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I decided it was a good idea to buy him a articulated bat skeleton. I think it was that he could hang on the wall. Frankly, I think it would probably go well in this apartment, <laughs> but he didn't like it and didn't think the idea was a very good one. No. I still maintain it's it's not a bad thing to have, but apparently shipping from the States to Canada with animal bones, it, it's a little bit tricky. So that was a no-go. Good thing it's tricky because I would have ended up with a bat skeleton. Yeah, you would have been, that'd be great. It was a small one too, only like, I don't know, four inches by four inches or something. Yeah, yeah I could do without a bat skeleton in my wall. Yes. Well... Good thing it didn't work out. All right. So what is DBT? I, I want to say it's dialectical behavioral therapy. Whoa, big question. And and yeah, so I've, I'm not a specialist in this area of therapy. It's only something that I've I started learning more about as of yesterday because it's part of one of the work module and, and trainings. <laughs> okay. So if you don't want to try that and tarnish your reputation, I can give my complete layperson's <laughs> understanding of it. My question is, what is your purpose of bringing it up? And maybe I can speak to what I know about it in a more specific way. Because I feel like DBT is relevant in the context of considering one's death and not being overwhelmed by the the terror, the existential dread of ceasing to exist. And, and how so? Well, DBT, from my understanding of it, is accepting what is and also working towards the future. And I think accepting the fact that you're going to die, but still using that fact to drive your motivations and frame your life, it would be an important tool. Okay. And that's exactly it. So I didn't even have to say it. <laughs> I, I uh, asked because I didn't, I didn't know exactly why you were bringing that up, but that makes perfect sense now. So I can, I can, I can maybe speak to that. Uh, the dialectical part of the word in DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy stands for, I guess, uh, the interplay of opposites, like uh, dialectics in philosophy is the play of opposites, so like debate. And uh, you can see that a lot in Socrates in his writing is constantly playing devil's advocate. And it's, it's dialogue or dialectic is kind of that play of opposites of always looking at this or that, this or that. And you're trying to come to some 
synthesis on on the truth of, of of a situation by constantly looking at the opposing arguments. But in DBT, it's more of a psychological tool where we, we look at two opposing things that look like they're contradictory, but are both true. And instead of saying an or statement, it has to be this or that. We replace the or with and. I mean, have some flexibility in holding two opposing things to be true at the same time. And the two things that are relevant to this is that you are going to die and nothing matters. Mm. And life is worth living and, and finding some sort of meaning despite that. And it may be the only thing that matters. Yeah. yeah. So everything matters and nothing matters. Depending on how you frame it. Yeah. And depending on how you look at it. And and it's not about trying to, to pick one side and say, well, this one must be true and the other one's false. Yeah. It's it's being more flexible in your understanding of the world and holding to the holding these two things to be true at the same time and moving forward despite the contradiction and it appears contradictory. Right. Like a fuel that keeps you going and not just cripples you at its realization. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually wanted to use that. I, I think it's a quote from somewhere else, but it's a book by Ryan Holiday called The Obstacle is the Way. And he basically talks about how having an obstacle, right. often people think it's like a, they, they complain about it and they think it's not a good thing to have. But he argues that the obstacles that come up are actually guiding posts for where we should be going most. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Stephen Pressfield's proposal of the emotion of resistance, where whatever it is that's giving you the most headaches and resistance is probably the thing you should be addressing most. And so in this way, I think that death itself, I mean, it's the ultimate obstacle. We cannot overcome it yet, at least. Mm-hmm. The fact that death is there is actually kind of a framing device. I was thinking about it in terms of, say, creativity. Okay. Yeah. If I say, make me a painting, I give you no stipulations. You can do whatever you want. Any medium, any, it can be multimedia. It could be a single media. It could be a performance art. I don't care. Whatever mm-hmm. you want. Complete freedom. That's crippling. Mm. That's really, really difficult to do anything with. It is. It's like those assignments in school where they say, write me an essay. Oh, I hated those. And well, the student, the student will always ask, can I have more guidance? Uh, how many pages does it need to be? What does it need to be on? What type, what, what is the, the formatting? And there's all of these questions yeah. that give you guidance. Okay. Name a form of, of poetry that you know about. Haiku. Exactly. First thing that comes to mind. That's exactly what I was hoping you would say. Because it's one that is very stringent on structure, but you can do anything you want within that structure, which actually allows you to have something to push up against. And likewise, death is always there looming before us. We know we have only so many years. Maybe we could die now, but we haven't yet. And so we need to figure out what the hell we want to do in the meantime and use that as like our framing device. Right. How we should view life through this. And I also feel like, well, I was talking about decision fatigue. I was thinking about that with with having unlimited options. But also, I think another important thing about death is that our death doesn't stop the world. The world continues on. We just cease to exist. And I think Mm. there is a quote from Watchmen, which it's very, very slight, but I keep coming back to it for some reason. It's just Dr. Manhattan, the giant blue guy who's basically a demigod, says nothing ever ends because at the end of the book, I think they're like, it's over. And his response is just nothing ever ends. Everything continues forever, indefinitely, even after the heat death of the universe, potentially. Mm -hmm. And that I found, I don't know, interesting for some reason. I had an idea about secular reincarnation I wrote about once. Wow. That's that's big. That's a big topic. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking about that because like death, death is the end, I guess. But my take was, and I, I know, okay, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a philosopher of the infinite. It's a real thing. But what I was thinking about was if time, space, or dimensions are infinite, okay. then every 
possible thing, every possible orientation that can occur will occur. And if it continues on indefinitely, then there's a good chance or at least a chance that it will occur more than once. And so the reason I'm following that is, well, the fact is we live and we currently are experiencing life. So that has already occurred once, which means it's possible. Then potentially, given an infinite amount of time, space, dimensions, whatever, it's possible that we, as we know ourselves, could come back. Wow. And this is absent of a God. That actually made sense. <laughs> Good. But I, I know people have pushed back on me saying that that's not how infinite works or infinity or probability. I'm not a statistician, no. but it, it makes some sense to me still. And you said the death is a framing device, almost like uh, like strict instructions on, on the type of essay that you should write as a student. It gives you some kind of direction and, and purpose and urgency rather than just saying, write me an essay, no deadlines, no structure, nothing. So there's the interplay between the infinite that you're talking about versus the finite, which is our time here, and that finitude as a, a containing device or structuring that gives us purpose. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, I, I think I've already basically said everything I had to think about that. I think that for me, I guess one of the things I wanted to talk about was living for others or by others' expectations or standards. I think that that's a mistake and that we need to evaluate whether we want to or not. I, I came to this kind of existential crisis in first year university because I realized that the plot that I assumed, the assumed life plan, as I think I started calling it, which is go to school, get a job, get married, have a kid, work mm -hmm. until you're, I don't know, 50, 60, then retire and then wait for death, which that, that all sounded oh so terrible that I decided that, that that was not what I wanted to do. Luckily, life had other plans anyway, so I couldn't have done that either way. But I, I at least decided before that was the case that I, I didn't actually want it. Mm -hmm. So I think in regards to that, there's another quote I had by Marcus Aurelius, famous Stoic philosopher. He says, quote, stop whatever you're doing for a moment and ask yourself, am I afraid of death because I won't be able to do this anymore? End quote. This being the very thing that you are doing. If you're looking at porn, you're talking to your wife, mm -hmm. you're bicycling. Is this the thing that you're afraid of not being able to do anymore if you were to die? This, this one thing? And oftentimes I'm sure it'll be no. <laughs> That makes sense. If somebody really hates their job, I guess it would be more of a, a relief. But now we're getting into the realm of suicide. And that's another thing that I are we? talk to people about often because, well, I, I, are we? Do you see the connection here? I was actually going to talk about work next because I thought that was more relevant. Well, it's more relevant, but it just kind of, I don't know where my mind went, but it was it's almost like, is this the thing that I'll miss so much? And then I thought, well, if you hate your job, then actually you'll be happy that you, you're not, you're not living anymore. And I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. Being happy. You're not living anymore. That's like suicide. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's where you're going with that. I think that's actually why I wanted to talk about work next. Okay. Yeah. So let's go the opposite route. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to focus on, um, well, I wanted to start talking about anti-work, the, uh, the subreddit slash R slash anti-work. Mm -hmm. They seem to think that nobody should have to work ever. And that. Uh, work is a drudgery. They think that the idea of a dream job is brainwashing because nobody should actually want to work. And some people even say stuff like, why should I work? I would rather just stay at home and, and make art all day. And I think there's a, a very rampant confusion there as to what work is, mm -hmm. what work could be defined as. Yeah. Cause like, what is, what does work mean to you? 
Well, uh, there's a lot of play involved. I can give you my dad's definition, just if you want a second to think. Well, my dad's definition was work isn't fun. If it was fun, they would call it that, mm-hmm. which I always now think is just a fundamental misunderstanding of how language works. But you said there's an element of play. Okay, continue on well, that. And, and you play in games and games are, are structures where you try to strategize to, to do better. To reach a goal. And I think that's what I reach a goal to do to do something effectively and you can do it again and again over time you improve. And I think that's the way I approach my, my conversations with clients and calls that I'm receiving is you're thrown a very challenging situation and it's like, okay, game is set. What are you going to do with it? And, and there's an element of play and that not, it's not, you're not playfully having a conversation about suicide, but a play of getting from point A to point B kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. It's not like a fun, like we I'm going to swing, but it's <laughs> the, the agility and the present moment focus and the flow state that you get in. There's an, there's an element of purpose that feels somewhat fun. Yeah. You feel like you're doing something purposeful. Yeah. yeah. Impactful. Yeah. Another Marcus Aurelius quote I had inserted here was you could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do say and think. There's a lot of repetition of that. Basically, I think the reason why I think they may have the Stoics that is had focused so much on virtue is that if you're going to die at any moments, you might as well hope that you've lived up to the virtues that you you aspire to. Because if you haven't been and you just die after doing a, a virtuous act or de- by defying your own virtues, I mean, supposing there is an afterlife, that'll be one thing you'll certainly regret. But I mean, most of the time it won't. Mm. It will just be your legacy, I guess, as being somebody who didn't live up to their virtues or at least didn't even have them, perhaps. Right. Yeah. So I I like I really like that as one of the key takeaways is, are you living by your values? You can say the word virtues as well, whatever, whatever word you want for it. Mm. Uh, Are you living in a way that you're proud of right now? Let's say if you were to pass away tonight, tomorrow, next moment, have you lived with integrity or all you can? And there's that urgency again, as you said before, the the framing device or the container. Right. Yeah. Where I wanted to go with that too is why do we work and why do we even want money? And I don't know about you. I know you wanted to outsource. We've we've talked about that a little bit, but personally, I, (laughs) I just aspire to get money because I want to be able to build systems and companies and stuff that I can use that money to make things that I think the world should have or that I think the world needs more of. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, a product, maybe, I mean, even a company that will self-terminate eventually, one that Mm. doesn't have planned obsolescence. I I would rather have enough money that I wouldn't need to have public companies because I feel like the whole shareholder ethic of like profits now indefinitely and no losses or else they'll be pissed off. That is a, it's a very short-sighted strategy that does not pan out in life. And uh, I, I just... I kind of am trying to figure out how to move forward in a society that is currently and has been led by very short term goals for the longest time. So I think that's yeah. that's why I want money. Like, why why do you want to work? I guess for you, it's more of an enjoyment thing, a fulfillment in that way. Yeah, I see money as a tool, just like yourself, and and uh, as a tool for for me, largely outsourcing is the goal of things that I everyday things. We talked about the fox and the hedgehog, and how I am not so big on the everyday things. I don't, I'd rather not do house maintenance and and hand handyman stuff and, and all of the, all of that. So money buys me freedom to focus on the things that I'm best fitted and best suited for. Mm. And to, in not just in terms of the vocational stuff, but spending time with family, for example. So money 
buys freedom to focus on more important money buys time and yeah, time and freedom to focus on more important things. I, to me, I see money as a shorthand for time. If you have a lot of money, you can, th- yeah. a lot of time you can speed something up by throwing money at it, or you can get That's something it. to go away by throwing money at it. So, so rather than spending all day, like fixing the, the faucet and, or like plugging yeah. up the drain or doing some kind of like handyman work. But that depends though. Like for me, I would do it out of curiosity and to understand how these systems work for you. You would see it as drudgery. So yeah, it's not universal in any of these cases. I think I also... No, 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 no. None of this is universal. This is like very specific to you. Yes. What tool... Money's a tool for your individual well, desires. This this dovetails nicely. I feel a little bit rushed with this new 45-minute structure. Um, the... The next thing I wanted to touch on before going to the conclusion was Ikigai, which we have mentioned many times, but we have not actually defined. So Ikigai is a Japanese concept, meaning a reason for being. It is a combination of four different things, and it's easy to see in visual form, so we'll be posting that, but it's a combination of what we love, what the world needs, what we can be paid for, and what we are good at. A combination of those four things is Ikigai, so something you love or good at, the world wants, and you can get paid for. But I mean, easier said than done figuring out what the hell that is, especially as the world continues to evolve. Yeah. So maybe I can get more into that in a future conversation. I like that concept. Nice, nicely worked in. Yeah, you do. Keep pushing it, even though I'm the one that has to research it <laughs> and teach about it. Okay. So conclusions, yeah. I was going to say that as long as you continue pushing your goals forward and you figure out what those goals are, these are the things that are important. What, what it is you want to do with your time and also use death as a movement forward, but don't expect or require yourself to have instant success because it's not going to work like that. The Chinese have a phrase, it's a proverb, it doesn't matter how slowly you go as long as you do not stop. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the important thing. Like just keep keep chipping away like I guess we're doing with this podcast. So I also think that there are positive takeaways from this. What do you think of the positive takeaways from from remembering your death? Well, the, the key thing there is that instilling that urgency and and pivoting toward what matters at any given moment when you feel like, am I just going through the motions? Hmm. Yeah. Am I am I sleepwalking right now? Am I sleepwalking right now? I, it's a good question to ask yourself on a day to day basis. Really, for sure. It did or what did I do today that actually? pursued some end that I feel is worthwhile, I guess, even a minor thing, even just setting up your workspace mm-hmm. for like a couple minutes. I don't know. Mm-hmm. For me, I think that a positive takeaway is yeah. to realize that we all hear these stories of people who had terminal cancer or they just dropped out of a heart attack and that could be us at any time. But the people that survive, like suicide survivors or people who survive terminal illness, illnesses, define the odds. They end up usually coming back with a much more verve for life. They usually want to live much more and appreciate life much more than the rest of us. Yet we all have the exact same circumstances and it's just a difference in perspective. And I think that's why the Stoics constantly say like, you could die right now, you could die right now. I think one basically said, you have died. You have already died. The time in the past is already dead. You are dying every minute, basically. Mm -hmm. Every minute that's passed so far is dead now. It's gone. So take what time you have left, assuming you had died just this moment. Mm -hmm. Take whatever time you have left and do with it the most that you can possibly do. And again, this is by personal definition. This is not by societal definition. You don't need to chase a million dollars. You don't need to chase a yacht unless I know like Steve does. (laughs) But do it for yourself because you enjoy yachts. Yes. Yes. So be present in the moments and uh, ask what you're rushing towards, because often we're just constantly rushing. But generally, the answer is we're rushing forward towards our own death. We're trying to get faster to get move forward to die. Like that's that's what we're rushing towards, regardless of whether you achieved all your goals and your Mm. savings goals for the year. These don't matter. Ultimately, I mean, they do matter in the short term and we should still focus on them. But 
I don't think that we should sacrifice living in the moments and enjoying our lives just so that we can do the things that society tells us to do. Love it. That was just a, you always come up with the most brilliant conclusions. Oh, thank you very much. My thinking was time is going to pass either way. So we might as well use it to the best we can and live on our own terms. Live on your own terms. You know, that's something we keep coming back to again and again. And I think we, we will continue to do that. Well, hopefully. Anyway, thank you for listening in this time. We will be back again next week. And uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Take care. All right. Recording. You are going to die and nothing matters. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Probably won't use that take.